Uh, I want to start with the first thing this morning, and I was going to have uh, Corey, the guy who's been doing Youth Fours for the last few years, uh, stand up so you could say thank you to him. Corey has never felt like youth was his calling. We have offered him the job multiple times, and he really has a desire. God's leading him into what's called forestry management in, Ameri- or in California. It all keeps burning down, so I don't know what he's going to do, but he, he's going to college for that. He's been accepted to Cal Poly, and so in the fall, that's where he's going to be going. And this is why we have been looking for a youth minister for the last couple of years. But I wanted you, when you see him, to acknowledge him and say thank you so much. But he's not here this morning because his wife had a baby. <laughs> so when you see me, go, congratulations, and thank you for all your hard work that you did. Uh, we will be telling you more as the summer goes along with our plans for junior high and high school and what that looks like, because we're trying to make contingency things as we move forward, but hopefully we'll start getting uh, some candidates uh, for the youth minister, pos- youth minister position in the next few weeks. We'll keep you to date and let you know how that's going. Okay, so last week, Sarah did talk about the dodgeball tournament, and I wanted to show you the winning team. Or not. No, oh, we didn't? Yeah? No? He's clicking on something. Okay, anyway, uh, the winning team was called the Lone Rangers. Uh, oh, there they are. Okay. Be- because everybody on this team signed up individually. And so we put them on a team together and they beat all of us, which is totally unfair. <laughs> it is rigged. My gospel community fielded 2.5 teams. I say 0.5 because one of them was actually a youth team. Um, and none of us won, but these guys did. So way to- Saban was the captain. Way to go with that. I know it's like Sarah did announcements and Aaron's doing a whole new random announcements. I do have uh, one more thing before we start, and that is this. Uh, I mentioned last week that I would do a Q&A session today. So after the, the 1045 service at about noon, I'm going to hang out in here for about an hour. If nobody shows up, that's fine. But if anything we've gone through in the last few weeks has brought questions or you have other questions, feel free to come back at noon, and I will do a Q&A session. It's going to be an hour max. If nobody shows up, I'm going to go home and eat lunch. But if you do, we'll hang out, and I'll let you ask some questions and see where we're at. So there you go. Uh, Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the front, you're going to get a place for notes. You're going to get the verses we're covering. On the bottom of that, you get a place to write a question. If you have a question and don't want to come back at noon and you want us at some point answer that question, you can put it there. On the back, you get just a couple paragraph recap of what we're talking about. And underneath that, you get some questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element who really needs to learn how to run better. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? All right, uh, this is Matthew 25, verses 41 to 43, and it says this. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Let's pray. Uh, Father, today we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who earnestly desire you 
to live eternity with you, to understand the great salvation that we have received, and that we would begin to be those who live that out in our lives, that display the understanding of the gospel. I ask that you would teach us to be those who glorify you in all that we do. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series called Never Read a Bible Verse. Uh, not that we never want you to read the Bible. It's just that we want you to read the Bible in context. And there are some weeks we'll be talking about a concept, and some weeks we'll be talking about verses. And today I'm going to do both. I'm going to talk to you about an idea of a whole context of a conception of an idea, plus some verses we're going to walk through. Uh, when we say, again, never read a Bible verse, we want you to read the Bible, but we just want you to read it in context. We have to understand who it was written to, why it was written the way that it was. The Bible is not a book of pithy little one-liners that you can look at and say, well, how do I figure out these issues in my life? The Bible is about Jesus first. It's about our fallen nature and who we are, our situation, our sin, and God's redemption of us. If you come at the Bible like a self-help book, it's never going to make sense. Like, oh, what do you do when you argue with your spouse? Oh, page 35. Or uh, why are cookies so great? Page 1. Why is country music so bad? Page 666. You know, it's just... <laughs> if you come at the Bible like that, you're never going to get it. Now, some people have said, oh, the Bible is so violent. Well, there is violence in the Bible, but you have to understand why that's in there in order for it to make sense. And so we have to see what God is actually doing, not trying to focus it upon ourselves. And through this series, we want to help you to grow. What are the questions you should first ask when you come across something you don't understand? Well, we need to start in a place where we understand who God is first. And we need to see that God's love for us as his people is really written on every page, even when we don't understand it. The Bible contains truths that so many people want to fight against. And yet, when we actually live in those truths, we live in peace. We are those who see things that are going on in the country in the last couple days, and we want to pray for peace. We don't just want to go out and fight. We want to be those who pray for peace, who want people to come together centered around the banner of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. And when we live that way, trusting who God is and the words that he has spoken, I think we live in joy deeper than we could ever imagine. So often we want to fight what God says, but when we really trust what he says, we live in deeper joy. Now, the Bible is historically reliable, and it's also reliable in our lives and how we live. And this is what we want this series to bear out for you and what we look at. Now, today, as I said, we're going to look at two things. Uh, your notes will say, Hell Works. I thought that was a great title, Hell Works, because it could be, Hell Works? No, hell doesn't work, but hell and works. You'll see where I'm going. Or you'd just be like, that's a terrible title. Whatever. So I'm talking about Helen Works. This is based out of Matthew 25. If you want to open your Bible there to Matthew 25. It's on page 539 if you have an element Bible. Now, many people don't understand hell or even our works because we take them out of context all the time. And I don't think a lot of people, even though they've heard some sermons on hell, haven't heard a real sermon about hell. And I think we have a distorted view about hell. It leads to a distorted view about life and eternity with God himself. And church signs don't help. Uh, there's a church sign in town that said at one point, stop, drop, and roll won't work in hell. And I thought, ooh, is that, is that how we talk about hell? Like it's this vindictive thing. Oh, you don't agree with me? Well, you're going to burn in hell and you'll see I was right. Like that's the point of hell, proving that you're right. Is that why it's actually there? Now, what you have to understand is why such a place would actually exist. And Element is one of those churches that actually believes that hell is real and forever is a long time. But we also believe that heaven is real. 
and eternity is going to pass faster than we could ever imagine when we are enthralled with Jesus. So this isn't going to be a turn or burn, you know, hellfire brimstone kind of sermon. What it's going to do is I'm going to talk about and explain the ideas a little bit of heaven and hell, our heart's desires, and at the end I'll explain what hell I think really is. Now if you could just for a moment picture in your mind when I say the word hell, what do you think? Just picture it. Is it like pitchforks and demons going, ah, ah, ah? Is it like chains? Is it fire? What, what do you see when you picture it? Well, what if there is more to hell than most people actually think? Because no one really wants to go to hell. And I say that, but actually there was a statistic and a study done a few years ago that 3% of people in America believe in hell and they want to go there and they're planning to go there, which is really weird to me. But I would submit to you that very few people actually want to go to hell. But that doesn't mean that all those people who don't want to go to hell actually want to go to heaven. Now, I know when you say that, a lot of people think, of course we all want to go to heaven. Oh, we, we want to go there. That's because most people see heaven as a pleasure factory where God gives you whatever you want. Most people on the planet today, over 90% believe in an afterlife that goes on beyond death. Most people assume they know what heaven means. But most people have a cartoon picture of heaven, just like we have a cartoon picture of hell. Either it's all harps and singing and clouds all day, which really sounds more like hell to me personally, or it's seen as this pleasure factory. Uh, Larry King was this old interviewer. He was probably the interviewer for over a decade. And when he had religious people on his show, he would ask, who's going to heaven? He'd ask that question. He never really asked what heaven is like because everybody has their own idea of what heaven is like. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it first started, but someone somewhere created that idea that heaven is whatever you like. And if you like, say, Hawaii, well, then heaven is your eternal Hawaii. That's what it's going to be. I once heard a guy who has loved Jesus deeply and gave this sermon about heaven that says, you know, based upon numbers on the earth today and the numbers given in Revelation, everyone's going to get about a couple square miles and that's going to be whatever you like in there. And I'm like, because, oh my goodness, we just made heaven all about us. And the idea is that anybody would love to spend eternity if I could just get in through those pearly gates. You know, what is heaven? I want to give you a definition of heaven. It is the full manifestation of what it means to bow the knee to God in full submission to Him for eternity. Let me say that again. Heaven is the full manifestation of what it means to bow the knee to God in full submission to Him for eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not amazing things God has for us to do. We're not just going to be sitting on our knees the entire time. I think that God will have, we're going to get to explore this entire universe, I think, that He created. And we're going to be astounded at everything that we see and we will worship Him. But our entire lives will be about His glory and who He is. And for many people, that actually sounds like hell. Heaven is about true and real relationship with God. It's not about us. People look forward to a heaven that is focused on themselves, but a heaven that is not focused on Christ would be hell. That's what it would be. C.S. Lewis once said this, all the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Now, he's being a bit facetious when he says that, but the idea is that you can hate the idea of hell, but that doesn't mean you love the idea of what heaven actually is. Lake of fire, eternally separated from God. It all sounds so horrible. But hating that doesn't mean you love the idea of what heaven actually is. Believers in Jesus, we look forward to one day like the fight being over and justice is done. Every moment is fully submitted to God's will and desire over us. But one of the things the scripture teaches us is that in this life, we will start to demonstrate the type of eternity that we desire. And that is why I called this message Hell 
works. Not that we're saved by our works, but our life and our works are going to show what we truly desire. It'll show what we believe about God's love and God's mercy and the gospel spoken over us. Hell for a long time is used by a lot of people to try and scare people. And if we scare them enough, well, obviously they're going to want to go to heaven because they don't want to go to that hell place. Again, scaring people out of hell does not make them want heaven. So if you haven't turned to, open to Matthew 25, 539 in an element Bible. And as you do that, I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, my wife, she has these two cats. She doesn't want to let them outside because she's always afraid that they're going to get lost or get run over, or eaten by a coyote or eat a lizard and then get the diarrhea. And then someone's got to clean up that diarrhea and it's, and it's never fun. The cats, on the other hand, just sit there and wait for a half second lapse in your judgment to let them outside. My stepdad came over a couple weeks ago. He went to shut the front door, didn't notice it didn't shut and boom, that one cat runs out the door and he's all, hey, your cat ran outside. I'm like, oh no. And so I got to you know, get that cat. Anyway, but the cat, they will just sit there. So in the backyard, you got to shut that slider. If you don't, the cat will be like, Ugh, and go running out. So Bear, one of the cats, he's very smart about this. And he goes running out there. It's like his game. And he'll run for the Bougainvillea because it has big old thorns on it like this. And you don't want to grab him underneath it or the pool cover cover because he'll run underneath it and you can't get him underneath that. Now, if I'm fast when he runs in the backyard, I can be all, ah! and he'll be like, Right, you know, run away from the thing he's running at. But scaring him away from the pool cover cover or the bougainvillea doesn't make him want to run back into the house. He just runs somewhere else. Scaring him away from the bougainvillea or the pool cover cover doesn't make him want the safety of the house. Scaring people with the idea of hell does not make them want to run into Christ's arms. It does not make them want heaven. Does that make sense? Okay, okay, so what if when C.S. Lewis says this, hell is maybe the place where we start to get all that we think we want and we become totally self-centered, everything is about us, and then you have to live with that for eternity. And I think that is worse than pitchforks or fire or chains. Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus here is talking about the final judgment, the culmination of all things. And this is what he says. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now, I don't know if you know today, people like to call people the goat. The goat is the greatest of all time. Like, oh, in basketball, it's got to be like Kobe or Michael Jordan. But in the Bible, you don't want to be the goat. You want to be the sheep. You want to be the sheep. So this is a picture from Daniel chapter 7. It is about judgment, the Son of Man coming in glory. In Jesus' first incarnation, he comes in humility. In the second incarnation, there will be no doubt about who he is. This is Revelation 20, the end of all things, universal judgment. When does that happen? Well, today there's lots of people with speculations and charts and timelines. Oh, it's Russia and the bears coming down from the north. I don't care about any of that. I will tell you in the end, Jesus wins. Okay? He rules and he reigns forever. Just like last week in creation, when did it happen? God did it. That's where we start. Here, Jesus rules and reigns forever. This is a certainty of judgment. All the nations are gathered together. Nations here aren't just geopolitical. This is everybody, everybody on the earth. And God is going to make one people. And he does that by separating sheep and goats. This is not about the nation of Israel. It's about all of us, all nations. In every place, there are sheep mixed with goats. Whether it's in a country, a city, or even a church, there are sheep and goats. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is heaven. This is the kingdom of God. This is what we look for. This is our dream, full life with God. 
Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now that line, my brothers, won't take place when he talks to the goats. And this is where people will read this and they will think, ah, we must be saved by our works. Look at what all these people were doing. Of course they were saved by the morality and how they were helping other people. That means we shouldn't smoke or drink or cuss or hang out with people who do. Check, I must be saved. Now I, every once in a while, have to do funerals for non-Christians. Those are always hard funerals to do, by the way. And after one of them, this guy comes up to me and this is what he says. He goes, they were a pretty good person. Not trying to win any medals or anything, but pretty good. And that is the old world view of religion. You do good things, God has to let you into his pleasure factory. Guys, when Jesus says this, this is not about our works making us righteous. See, our sin before God is the problem, not trying to be good enough. When people have the wrong idea about what heaven is, the question starts to become, who's going to make it? How good do I have to be? If I don't win any medals, that's okay, as long as I'm good enough. How much can I disagree with what God says in the scriptures and, and still be okay? What are my minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when I die? That's the question. But nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever say, here are the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Why doesn't he say that? Because getting into heaven is not the thing you want the minimal entrance requirements for if you just want to skate by and get in. You don't really want heaven at that point. I told you this before. What if I went to my wife on our wedding day and I said, Marianne, okay, I just want to know, what is the absolute least I can do and still have you say I do? I mean, what is the lowest level of commitment that I can give you and have you say I do? I would not be married, right? <laughs> it just wouldn't happen. This is why salvation has to rest in the hands of God. Because so often we say, God, I do, I love you. And yet we give him the minimalist that we can give anybody. We are always running away. We are constantly rebelling. We are constantly falling. And this is why it has to rest in God's hands. Our faith is that our great God is good. And when he rescues us, he rescues us forever because he is our rescuer. Some people say, God is so unfair. And I think, yeah, God's unfair. Because if he was fair, none of us would ever be saved. God is good. God is good. So to be separated out of sheep cannot be because of our works. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep so we can go free. The sheep are those who understand the gospel, how they've been forgiven, how they've been saved, how they've been brought in. And then they have the proper motivation to begin to live a certain way. They have the love of Christ in them, so they live the love of Christ out of them. Our motivation is shown by things that we are drawn to. Like if, if you go to work, you're probably motivated by your paycheck. Right? If you buy your favorite meal, it's probably because of taste. If you listen to country music, it's because you like self-torture. I'm just going today on this one. <laughs> Jesus tells us that the sheep are living a certain way because they have been freed by God, because they understand the gospel, because they understand their salvation. Their response is to the grace of God. When did we help these people? When did we do this? It's like, I don't even see it because they just naturally begin to live that out. 
Our lives have been separated out already. We've been saved by God's love. And so we should want to live a completely different life way because he first loved us. This goes back to what we talked about in the book of James just a few weeks ago. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And I told you, James calls this, or this is called a Greek rhetorical argument. James is fighting against a light faith that minimized necessity of living for Jesus once we believe in him. The Apostle Paul clearly says that works cannot bring us to Christ. But James says, after we come to Christ, our works are going to show if we truly love Him or not. James sounds a lot like Jesus here. James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good, that's the word benefit, is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is us responding to what God has done in our lives, living like God would. I once heard someone say this, are you a sheep because you act like one, or do you act like a sheep because you are one? Do you walk around acting like this thing, hoping you're this thing, or do you naturally do it simply because you are that thing? Back in the 90s, there was this chimpanzee, his name was Oliver, and he was touted as the missing link. Why? Well, he liked human girls, he smoked, he drank brandy every night, but they tested his DNA, and guess what? He's a chimp, right? Just because he acts like your uncle doesn't make him human. That's how it is. You can act a certain way and not be a certain thing. Where the real sheep, where you see real sheep, you will see people looking to love into their communities, to serve others around them. You will see service and love, not because they have to, but because they're simply engaging in the mission of God, because what else could we do? Verse 41, Matthew 25, back there. Then he will say to those on his left, that's not like a thing against left-handed people at all, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? See, both groups say this to him. Both groups say this. When did we see this? And one of them just naturally serve and love these people. And the other one's like, I didn't notice any of that. Why? Because they're self-focused. They're always looking at themselves. Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, and here he doesn't say my brothers, you did not do it to me. See, when Christians have a healing attitude in the world, it is like you walked out in your front yard with a hose and you're spraying your lawn, like your lawn is the world, like, shh, and you're spraying it down and water gets everywhere because when you follow God, that love's just gonna go everywhere. It's gonna come out of you because what else could it do but come out of you? You're like, I don't love that much. I don't know what to do. Trust Jesus. Okay, all right. The, the goats have an attitude of what's in it for me. What's heaven like? How do I get in? What are my minimal entrance requirements? If it's all about me, how do I get there? They don't go and serve simply because they've been loved and brought in. They don't see others as brothers or sisters. Just, you know, so rhyme there. Uh, when you get to the end, Jesus says this, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, some people say, oh, that sounds so harsh. My God would never. Well, your God would never what? 
Well, I couldn't worship a God who allowed anybody to go to hell. Well, I'll tell you this. Your worship of God does not determine what he does. It doesn't. It doesn't. And thank God that that is truth. Because we have enough idols and gods in our culture centered on us. We do not need another one. God does what he does because he is good. And God is righteous. And God loves us. He treats us with dignity and grace. And he calls us to go out and love the world in the same way that he does. Do we treat those around us like God has treated us? Who has brought us in and called us to himself and loved us. Our view of those around us is going to give us a pretty good idea whether we are sheep or goats, whether we want to worship God or not, if we want to be in relationship with God or not. There is a revealing to our lives, not for other people to judge you, but for you to be able to see where you actually are, if we're sheep or goats. Goats can run around and say, oh, I have faith, I have faith, but it's not evidence in how they love God and others. A lot of goats, I think sometimes they think it's shown in their legalism. Oh, I don't smoke or swear or watch rated R movies and I judge people who do. Oh, I must be really holy. How do you love the least of these, our brothers? How do we love the least of these? Goats don't love people. Goats don't love the mission of God. They always feel like it's overbearing. Gosh, I really got to love people. I got to serve people. I got Sheep are like, yeah, let's love and serve. Let's go. Not that they always have tons of energy. Sometimes they're tired. It's okay to be a tired sheep. Okay? But goats are like, why do I got to do this? Why do I got to care? Why, why do I need to give generously? It's, it's all mine. God just wants my money. They don't love grace. Sheep love grace. Sometimes goats do good things, but our motivation shows why. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you have to understand in verse 41, Jesus tells us this, that hell was not prepared for us. What are we made for? We are made for the kingdom of God. That's what we are made for. But I think many of us would rather be in hell than actually live in eternity with God himself. Do you know that Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? I think people who only read a Bible verse out of context, what they do is they think hell and going there, it's about morality and rules and there's a list of good things that get you into heaven and a list of bad things that get you into hell, like a, like a schoolboy behavior policy. If you do all the right things, you graduate to heaven. You do all the wrong things, you, you go to hell forever. It's the good place and the bad place. Where do you want to go? You have that whole TV show called The Good Place. I just want to be in the good place and it's all about works. I have said this before, in reading the Bible, you must see it in context. So let me take a little sidetrack before I bring this all back together. I want to talk about hell just for a moment, since a lot of people have questions about it. Uh, Jesus will talk about hell, and he will call it the hell of fire. When I was a kid, my aunt told me I needed Jesus. I would burn in hell forever if I didn't know him. And I said, what does that mean? And she says, have you ever touched a hot stove and burned yourself? And I said, have you met me? I'm accident prone. Of course, I've touched a hot stove and burned myself many times. You know, and she said, well, imagine that being all over your body forever and you can never pull away. I'm like, yeah, it's terrible. So she said, here, pray this prayer. I mean, I would have prayed whatever she was selling at the moment. And I prayed that prayer from the time I was 12 years old to the time I actually believed in Jesus. <laughs> the time I actually became saved. I prayed that from when I was 12 to when I was 17 years old. Guys, when I became a Christian, I realized it's no longer, it's not about fire insurance, it's about loving Jesus. Now, in the scriptures, when it talks about fire, fire references judgment. And I say that not to make hell more palatable to people, but I want to be biblically accurate. Jesus says in hell there is darkness, there, there is weeping. You can't have really hot and water and fire and all these things together. It just doesn't make sense. So when the Bible teaches about the afterlife and heaven and hell, it's using these metaphors to figuratively speak about things that are a spiritual reality. Hell is real, and the reality that fire points to is real. 
Fire is an image throughout the scriptures of destruction. Fire is generally used to destroy something that was offensive to God's holiness. You go to the temple and you sacrificed an animal. Those sacrifices would be burned. They would be burned. This is what it's pointing to. Just, I think, like entering heaven would be for all of us to essentially become what it truly means to be human, image bearers of God himself. I think when you go into hell, it's the idea that you're hardly human at all. You're the goat. We have, been, we have been cast off from the image of God that we are created in, and then what's left of us is just us. You don't have to agree with me on that because I think that's open-handed. I think close-handed is there is a hell, but I think it's open-handed over here on what that's like. Jesus says, Matthew 13, 42, in that place, this is hell, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the Bible is very clear. What's God's heart for his people? Matthew 25, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's God's heart. The idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think in hell means that we are just so enamored with ourselves. We are so self-centered. When we are completely centered on ourselves, I think our life can even start to be hell here and now. If you want to know how self-centered you are, find somebody you trust and ask them. Scale of one to 10, how self-centered do you think I am? And don't get mad at them if they're honest with you. Because I think for all of us, we need somebody to tell us that at times. How self-centered do I live my life? Could you tell me? I will trust you enough. Then when they're like, 10, you're like, ah, I hate you. That's exactly what I was saying. We need to be, we need people in our life that we can trust that can say these things to us. And I think this is why hell can start here and now and go on into eternity when our appetites and our desires take Take us over. Um, I've talked to you about this before, uh, about Lord of the Rings. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's over a decade old, so no spoilers, get over it. If you haven't read the books, decades old at this point, so get over it. Uh, In the Lord of the Rings, there's this character, his name is Gollum. And Gollum's entire life is about this ring. He calls it his precious. Oh, my precious. It's, it's his ring. And he just loves, and, and his love of this ring has so twisted him that it has made him change from what was once a human, a hobbit, into this creature that's hardly recognizable. And when he has this ring, even his possession, it brings him no joy. So throughout the, the books that he's in, he, Bilbo Baggins gets the ring, blah, blah, all this stuff. But anyway, at the very end in the book, he gets the ring back. And he is so deformed from all of his self-centered focus on this ring that he can no longer even wear it anymore. Imagine an addiction so severe that even momentary bursts of gratification are gone. And all that's left is slavery to a hunger that can never be satisfied. I think that is gnashing of teeth. I think that is where this is going. The term hell comes from this Old Testament, in the Old Testament where there's a wicked king, his name is Ahaz. Second Chronicles 28, verses 2 and 3. He even made metal images of the Baals and made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons and daughters as an offering according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. This is a considerable offense before God that you would sacrifice your children to these false gods. And so Ahaz is a horrible king. 85 years after Ahaz, four kings later, comes a king who starts his reign at eight years old. His name is Josiah. When Josiah becomes a man, the scriptures are found again. They are read in Israel. It cuts people to the heart. And Josiah has them pull all of the idols out of God's temple. He burns down all of the false places of worship. And you read 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, so that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. 
And when it says defiled there, it means in a good way. He made it so nobody could sacrifice their children in that place any longer. These are the places that Josiah removed, so it could not be a place of worship. This place is located in the southwest corner of Jerusalem. After Josiah destroys it, it could only be used as a garbage dump. And you can't think like a dump that, that we have. This is where everything would go that is unclean. It is, it is waste and useless and all that, and it would be burned. And people would say that the fire never went out and the worms that were there never ceased to chew and eat. The Hebrew term for this location is Gehenom. Uh, that's the valley of Hinnom. In the Greek, it's Gehenna. And the word Gehenna is used in the Bible that is most often translated as hell. Jesus is giving these people a physical representation, I think, of what it looks like when our lives are consumed by ourselves. That is what hell is like right there. The word is used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of them by Jesus himself. Matthew 25, verse 34, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Contrast that, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see the contrast there? The righteous go into the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. The curse go into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, the eternal fire was not prepared from the beginning for people. It wasn't. Hell was not created for people. It's a response to sin and the rebellion of the evil one. Is hell made up of physical fire and brimstone? I don't know. I actually don't think so. I think it's worse than that, personally. I think hell is not just about what happens to you. I think hell is what happens in us for eternity. It's not that you're trapped in a bad circumstance you want to get away from. I think you're trapped in you. I think you finally have full reign of your self-indulgence and it just cycles down and down. The Jews used to call the devil Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the Flies. I think you get to a place where you become Lord of your own flies. And that's just forever, eternity. I think that's hell. I think that's the teaching of a real possibility for the human soul. But go back to what Jesus talked about. We are not a people who have to continue in that direction. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I quote this to you all the time, Romans 5.8, but God chose his love for us and that while we are still sinners, while we're goats, while we're running away, you know, making our hell hotter, deeper, darker, more sorrowful, Christ died for us. Jesus comes for us in that place. He suffered for all that cut us off from God himself. All that we deserved, he takes upon himself and he offers us redemption in himself. Redemption becomes available because of what Jesus did. Jesus made a way. See, the object of hell is not to scare you to get fire insurance when your aunt yells at you when you're 12 years old for no apparent reason. I think hell is God showing us this is who humanity is without me. And it cycles down further and further and further. Look what happened after the fall. Look at where we are today. Things just seem to get worse and worse and worse. And what do we do when we focus on ourselves and our rights and not serving God first? It cycles down more and more and more. And this is what hell goes towards. Uh, 2 Samuel 14, 14, a little out of context, but a wise woman says this, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. I love that she says this. It's so beautiful because this is true. God devises a way that none of us have to live apart from him for eternity. Eternity can start today and gets to go on forever. We find our life in Jesus over and above everything else. This is why for years people who believe in Jesus say things like, Jesus saves. Right? I know it sounds old and cheesy and funny and all that, but it is good news. 
and that good news has been proclaimed for over 2,000 years because against all odds, including ourselves, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He calls us. He draws us to himself. And so often when people have used the idea of hell and want to talk about hell, it's a way to scare people into believing in Jesus and wanting to go to heaven. That is not the point of hell. It's not to scare us. It's to show us a reality of what our lives are like without Christ. And that can go on forever. Or life with him gets to go on forever. God has called him to himself because he is good. He is good. And I think there's a lot of people today who, when they look at the understanding of heaven and hell, we may, again, hate hell, but that doesn't mean we love the idea of heaven. It doesn't mean we love the rule and the reign of God over our lives. And yet, and yet, God saves us in the places where we run from him, where we've fallen from him, where we've done everything to make our lives about ourselves. He calls us back to himself and exposes ourselves where we are, not that we're afraid to look at the places that we have fallen, but we can see that for what it is and then step into the great grace that he has given and live and walk in this life in ways that honor who he is. It, hell is kind of a, a tough thing, not just culturally speaking, but I think biblically speaking. Because when we look at it, we get so fixated on this thing. When we get fixated on this, we cease to fixate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, we are going, if you have half an hour to talk to somebody about stuff in the scriptures, you don't need to talk about hell. You need to talk about the gospel. The good news of God's rescue. Because, again, from the foundation of the world, God has created a place for us to live in relationship with him. And that's the point of what Jesus says in Matthew 25. It's not about our works. It's about the grace of the gospel and our great God rescuing us exactly where we are. And today, this is one of the reasons we come to communion. It's a reminder of what Jesus did. While we were running away, we're all as the goats and just running away from him. Like, he comes to us in that place and calls us to himself. And this is why we come to communion. We break a cracker. It reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us. And you dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for us because we kept running. And God seeks us and brings us to himself. This is why every week we offer this to you as a reminder of what God has done so we'd cease to focus on all these things and focus first on what Christ has done. If you need a gluten-free option, it's in the back. We also have single-use cups in the back as well if you want to grab one of those. But we take communion in remembrance of what Christ did to bring us to himself. If you need prayer, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center and she will connect you with one of us to be able to sit and talk with you about some of these ideas. Maybe you're just so scared of the idea of hell or maybe someone's presented it in a way that you're like, I can't believe God would do this. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you about that. You know, maybe today you're like, oh, I want to be someone who really does want to serve and worship God and you want us to pray with you about that. We'd love to do that. Uh, just grab a hold of her and she'll connect you with somebody. There's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done for us and the good news of the kingdom drawing us to himself. And take those sermon notes and those questions that are on there and talk to your friends or your family, your gospel community about them. Maybe ideas of what you always thought hell was versus maybe what it actually is. You know, have you been maybe scared away from hell and that's why you go to church, but you haven't ever come to a place of loving God for who he is? Well, that's the place that I think God is drawing us towards. Loving him for who he is in his goodness and his grace. So ask one another those questions and let that draw us to a place where we see the gospel for what it is and worship God in all that we do. Let's pray.
Father, this morning we ask that you would move us to places that we understand your glory, your goodness. So often it seems like we want to focus on the things that we don't like. But that is simply self-centeredness rearing its head again and again and again. And so I ask that you would teach us to move beyond that. That we would move to the place where we see what you have done to save us. Father, have us be a people who don't just hate the idea of hell, but we actually love the idea of an eternity with you. Not even that we can fully understand what that looks like or what it even means but we would desire it. We would desire to be in a place where all the ways that we so often fight against you would be gone and our hearts and our lives be fully submitted to you, your will, your desires, what you say, where you are truly worshiped by us for eternity. And that there'll be so much joy in that that we can't even fathom it right now. There'll be so much new to learn and discover and live as we are fully submitted to you. So have us have a deep understanding of not just why hell is there, but more importantly, the understanding of the kingdom of God and what we have been rescued from. And so we would naturally live as sheep because we are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes, you know, as we go through a couple songs, and maybe ask that, that question, you know, what's your, I, I sound like a, one of those guys on TV, what's your motivation? What, what, what is our motivation for what we do? Is it because we understand we've been saved by grace? And that's why we live the way that we do. That's why when people drive us nuts or we get irritated, we don't just cycle into that. Do we step away from that and think, okay, I'm really irritated right now, but I've been saved by God and I'm sure I frustrate him just like that. And with that as our motivation, then do we then start to love others? Do we truly live as sheep? So ask God to reveal that to you in these next couple moments. You know, do you, are you trying to act like a sheep but you aren't one, or do you act like one because you are one? Have God bring that reality to you. And then, come and take communion, sing some songs with us, and let's begin to live out as God's sheep, as his ambassadors, as his priests, as his hands and feet to the world, who he is, so people would know that our great God has rescued us from us.